Certain people came down from Judea to Antioch and were teaching the believers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. This brought Paul and Barnabas into sharp dispute and debate with them. So Paul and Barnabas were appointed, along with some other believers, to go up to Jerusalem to see the apostles and elders about this question. The church sent them on their way, and as they traveled through Phoenicia and Samaria, they told how the Gentiles had been converted. This news made all the believers very glad. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and elders, to whom they reported everything God had done through them. Then some of the believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees stood up and said, The Gentiles must be circumcised and required to keep the law of Moses. The apostles and elders met to consider this question. After much discussion, Peter got up and addressed them. Brothers, you know that some time ago God made a choice among you the Gentiles might hear from my lips the message of the gospel and believe. God, who knows my heart, showed that he accepted them by giving the Holy Spirit to them, just as he did to us. He did not discriminate between us and them, for he purified their hearts by faith. Now then, why do you try to test God by putting on the necks of Gentiles a yoke that neither we nor our ancestors have been able to bear? No, we believe it is through the grace of our Lord Jesus that we are saved, just as they are. The whole assembly became silent as they listened to Barnabas and Paul telling about the signs and wonders God had done among the Gentiles through them. When they finished, James spoke up. Brothers, he said, listen to me. Simon has described to us how God first intervened to choose a people for his name from the Gentiles. The, the words of the prophets are in agreement with this, as it is written. After this I will return and rebuild David's fallen tent. Its ruins I will rebuild and I will restore it. And the rest of mankind may seek the Lord. Even all the Gentiles who bear my name, says the Lord, who does these things, things known from long ago. It is my judgment, therefore, that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. Instead, we should write to them, telling them to abstain from food polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from the meat of strangled animals, and from blood. For the law of Moses has been preached in every city from the earliest times, and is read in the synagogues on every Sabbath. Then the apostles and elders, with the whole church, decided to choose some of their own men and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. They chose Judas, called Barsabbas, and Silas, men who were leaders among the believers. With them, they sent the following letter. The apostles and elders, your brothers, to the Gentile believers in Antioch, Syria, and Sicilia, greetings. We have heard that some went out from us without our authorization and disturbed you, troubling your minds by what they said. So we all agreed to choose some men and send them to you with our dear friends Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, we are sending Judas and Silas to confirm by word of mouth what we are writing. It seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us not to burden you with anything beyond the following requirements. You are to abstain from food sacrificed to idols, from blood, from the meat of strangled animals, and from sexual immorality. You will do well to avoid these things. Farewell. So the men were sent off and went to, down to Antioch, where they gathered the church together and delivered the letter. 
The people read it and were glad for its encouraging message. Judas and Silas, who themselves were prophets, said much to encourage and strengthen the believers. After spending some time there, they were sent off by the believers with the blessing of peace to return to those who had sent them. But Paul and Barnabas remained in Antioch, where they and many others taught and preached the word of the Lord. Thanks, Jacob. Well, uh, good morning, everyone. Before I start, I'd just like to say that I'm uh, really humbled to be able to be up here this morning. Uh, thankful that you guys have allowed me the opportunity and uh, really grateful for your prayers as well. Um, very much appreciate that. Well, I'm not sure if you've noticed it recently or if it's been a, a feature of public conversation recently, but every now and then in uh, Australia, which is a very multicultural place, there's a discussion in the public square about what makes someone a genuine Aussie. It's an interesting question because within our country there's such a diversity of cultures and ethnicities and languages and lifestyles. So then what's the defining characteristic that determines whether someone's in or out? Is it simply a matter of being born here? Uh, Simply a matter of being a citizen or a permanent resident? Or is it more to do with lifestyle factors like uh, enjoying barbecues, going to the beach, enjoying the Australian way of life, valuing freedom of speech and equality? If a person from outside Australia comes here and moves here, then how do they become an Australian? Do they have to pass some kind of test, like the official Australian citizenship test? I didn't realise we had one of those, but we do. Or do they have to live a certain way, follow certain rules or cultural norms before they can be called an Australian? Well... In Acts chapter 15, we read of some early Christians who were faced with quite a similar set of questions, not about what it means to be a citizen of a particular country, but about how a person can be saved. How can someone become a Christian? If we've grown up in Bible-believing churches, then we might really take the answer for this question for granted. It, It seems obvious to us. But for the church throughout the ages, it's actually been a topic of quite hot debate. And um, for for long periods of human history, a false answer to this question has been widely believed. We've probably all heard of the the Protestant Reformation of Martin Luther and John Calvin and, and, and those type of people. Well, in large part, what the Protestant Reformation was about and what those people were about was contending for a right answer to this question, how can someone become a Christian? And certainly I think if we asked people on the street today who hadn't been exposed to Christianity, we might hear a whole range of different answers about how someone becomes a Christian, and we might hear a whole range of misconceptions as well. So then it's definitely worth paying attention to Acts chapter 15, the chapter we read today, and the outcome of the Jerusalem Council to shed some light on this issue. We'll consider uh, this passage under three points, and we'll just kind of follow the flow of the chapter as it goes. So we'll firstly, we'll consider the question, how can someone be saved? Secondly, we'll look at the answer to that question. And thirdly, we'll look at some implications for Christian unity. So we start by reading in verse 1 and 2 that certain people came down from Judea to Antioch, 
and were teaching the believers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. This brought Paul and Barnabas into sharp dispute and debate with them. So Paul and Barnabas were appointed, along with some other believers, to go up to Jerusalem to see the apostles and elders about this question. So they arrive in Jerusalem, and the question's raised again at the council. We read in verse 5 that some of the believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees stood up and said, the Gentiles must be circumcised and required to keep the law of Moses. So what's actually going on here, and, and where has this issue come from? I think it's helpful at this point to have a brief recap of what's been happening in the book of Acts up until this point. Um, Acts is a book which traces the spread of the gospel from Jerusalem to Samaria to other parts of the world. We read in chapter 1 verses 8 that Jesus said to the apostles that uh, there'll be his witness in Jerusalem, Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And, And so far up to chapter 15 that's exactly what's happened. Uh, Chapter 1 through 7 of Acts talks about the gospel spreading uh, throughout Jerusalem. In chapter 8, it's the first time the gospel goes outside of Jerusalem. It's in Samaria and the Ethiopian eunuch got saved. And then in chapter 10, something unique and unheard of happened. Cornelius, a, a Gentile, a Roman centurion, receives a vision from an angel telling him to call Peter to his house. Peter goes to Cornelius' house, a Gentile, preaches the gospel, and Cornelius, a Gentile, receives the Holy Spirit along with his whole family. Then in chapters 13 and 14, we read about Paul and Barnabas' missionary journeys to Gentile places where people received the gospel and converted to Christianity. What we need to remember is that for some of the early Jewish Christians, this raised some real issues which is where the Jerusalem Council comes into it. The council took place in about 50 AD because there was a large portion of early Jewish believers who were really struggling to grasp the fact that Gentiles were being added to the faith and calling themselves the people of God without actually being circumcised or keeping the law. You see, for these early Jewish believers who are from, obviously, Jewish backgrounds, the law of God, that is, being circumcised and keeping the law of Moses was hugely important because it was something that was a sign and symbol of their being the chosen people of God. Circumcision was a sign of God's covenant with his chosen people and they saw the law as a good thing because it represented God's will for their life. God had called the Israelite people out from the world and given them circumcision and the law as a way of setting them apart. So in their eyes they saw no reason why that shouldn't continue. So in our 21st century context, it might be easy to sit back and think it's ridiculous for those early Jewish Christians to require that Gentiles be circumcised and kept the law. But we need to remember that for them it was extremely confronting that all of a sudden all these Gentiles could be calling themselves the people of God without having gone through the traditional rites of passage. Add to that the fact that Jews and Gentiles historically kind of despised each other I don't know if you remember in in chapter 10 when Peter went to Cornelius' house, the first thing he said to him was, you're well aware that it's against our law for a Jew to associate with or visit a Gentile. No, according to these Jewish believers, God's promises had been to the Jews. Jesus was a Jew. All the first Christians were Jews. 
So before we write these people off as legalistic troublemakers, we need to understand that it was a natural thing for them to be asking why anything should change. Was faith enough, or did it have to be faith plus circumcision and plus keeping the law? Well, as far as I'm aware, we're a room full of Gentiles, aren't we? We haven't gone through circumcision as some rite of passage to make sure that we're Christians. But we're also a room full of people who can tend to fall back on a kind of works-based, rule-keeping version of Christianity. And if not us, there's certainly other denominations and variations of supposed Christianity that uh, try and enforce the list of rules on their people. I distinctly remember when I was uh, 19 years old, I was working in civil construction plumbing. And um, one of the guys I worked with was a Jehovah's Witness. And we were sitting down having a, a lunch break one day. And this Jehovah's Witness guy was sharing his faith with the foreman on the job site. And the foreman was there having a cigarette. And the Jehovah's Witnesses looked at him and, and just blankly said, you cannot be a Jehovah's Witness if you smoke. Just like that. You might say that smoking cigarettes is uh, not necessarily a, a Christian behaviour and that it's a good thing to give up smoking cigarettes. And absolutely, absolutely, it's a fair argument. After all, our bodies are the temple of God. But to try and enforce that giving up cigarettes, and probably in this particular example following a whole lot of other rules, is a requirement for salvation, is actually anti-gospel and anti-grace. And effectively the same kind of things as what the early Jewish Christians were doing. You must do X, Y, and Z before you can be saved. It's an easy trap to fall into, though, isn't it? So much so that there's warning all through the New Testament about the same kind of thing. Probably one of the most uh, explicit uh, examples of this is in uh, Galatians. The Christians in Galatia fell into this same trap where they started to think that people were saved by what they did, by their works. So Paul writes to them and says in chapter 1, I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting the one who called you to live in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel, which is really no gospel at all. And later on in chapter 3, talking about the same issue, he calls them foolish, quite strong language. He says, you foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? And later he uses even stronger language in chapter 5 when he says, you who are trying to be justified by the law have been alienated from Christ, you've fallen away from grace. This is a serious theological issue. To suggest that someone can't be saved, can't be a Christian, unless they stick to a list of rules, is anti-gospel and it takes us away from Christ and His grace. Yes, the law is a good thing, but to rely on it, to rely on what we do for salvation is futile and it's actually heresy. So then it's up to us as individuals and up to us as a church, as a whole, to stand against this works-based version of Christianity. So let's have a look at the resolution to this question back in Acts 15. We read from verse 7 onwards, After much discussion, Peter got up and addressed them. Brothers, you know that some time ago God made a choice among you that the Gentiles might hear from my lips the message of the gospel and believe. God, who knows the heart, showed that he accepted them by giving the Holy Spirit to them, just as he did to us. He did not discriminate between us and them, 
for he purified their hearts by faith. Now then, why do you try to test God by putting on the necks of Gentiles a yoke that neither we nor our ancestors have been able to bear? No, we believe it's through the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that we are saved just as they are. Well, the first of three decisive witnesses at the council is Peter. And what he recounts is obviously his uh, experience with Cornelius in chapter 10, which happened as many as 10 years ago by the time the Jerusalem council. Later on in the chapter, Paul and Barnabas, which David read for us, they tell us about their experiences with the Gentiles, where God had done many signs and wonders among them, which probably would have been confronting for some of the people there to hear. After all, how could it be that God would be working among the Gentiles? Then Simon speaks up and says that, hey, what happened with Peter and Cornelius and what God's been doing among the Gentiles, where Paul and Barnabas have gone, is actually in accordance with his word. The prophecy that Simon talks about, which comes from Amos 9, uh, the prophecy of David's tent being rebuilt and the rest of mankind seeking the name of the Lord, even the Gentiles who bear his name, is actually now coming to pass. What Peter learnt from his experience, what Paul and Barnabas learnt, and what we can learn from this passage, is that God doesn't show favouritism, and he doesn't look to see who's ticking all the boxes. He knows the heart, and Peter makes it crystal clear that God accepted Cornelius on the basis of his faith, and nothing else. Cornelius, and by implication the other Gentiles that had been turning to God, weren't accepted by being circumcised or keeping the law, they are accepted on the basis of their faith. Peter actually turns the whole issue around when he asks the council why they would try and test God by placing on the necks of the Gentiles a yoke that neither the Jews or their ancestors had been able to bear. How could the Jewish Christians demand of the Gentile Christians something which they themselves had never even been able to live up to? The law was something that history had shown time and time again that the Jews had never been able to fulfil. It was an inadequate way for them to be saved. That didn't mean that they should abandon it altogether, but abandon it as a way of salvation. Peter emphatically says, no, we believe that it's through the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that we are saved, just as they are. All of a sudden, the shoe's on the other foot, and the lesson for the early Jewish Christians, and the lesson for us, is that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone. What we have here in Acts 15 is nothing less than the good news of the gospel. It's by the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ that you're saved, by putting your faith in him and his finished work on the cross. Anyone, Jew or Gentile or any other race or or any other person who puts their faith in Jesus Christ will be saved. If you're new to Christianity... Or even if you've grown up in church, then perhaps you might think about that Christianity is about living a good life, sticking to a list of do's and don'ts so that God's happy with you and lets you into heaven. I know that's certainly how I used to think. But no, you can't earn your salvation by sticking to a list of do's and don'ts. You can't earn your salvation by saying and doing all the right things. You can't earn your salvation by having a thorough understanding of biblical doctrines. You can't earn your salvation by having some kind of special emotional experience. You can't earn your salvation by burdening yourself with external behavioural expectations. 
you can't earn your salvation by ticking all the boxes. That's not to say that there aren't boxes to be ticked. Christianity absolutely comes attached with a moral code of conduct. But the problem is that none of us, if we're honest with ourselves, are able to live by that code of conduct. We need something or someone outside of ourselves to come and rescue us and make us new. We need to let go of, the Bible uses the language of dying to, we need to let go of ourselves and our efforts and cling to our Saviour. Jesus is the only one who ever ticked all the boxes. The only one who ever lived the perfect life. And Jesus is the one who died on a cruel cross to take the punishment that we deserved for our sins. Please get this. Please understand that this is the good news of the gospel. Whether you're new to Christianity or whether you've been a Christian for many years, then this message still applies. It's as relevant on day one of the Christian life as it is on day 2001 or 3001 of the Christian life. If I was to ask anyone in this room who's been a Christian for quite a while how they had been saved, then I'm absolutely sure that they'd say it's by faith in Jesus. But it's one thing to agree to that intellectually. It's another thing to fully believe that in our bones and apply it to our daily lives and the way we operate at a subconscious level. It's been said, I think maybe um, by Charles Spurgeon, that this idea of morality that we've been talking about, of being a good person in order to justify yourself, is mankind's natural religion. And by natural religion, that's to say that it's the natural tendency of the human heart for us to try and prove ourselves, stand before God in our own right, to subconsciously operate on the assumption that if we can just work harder and get better, that God will be happy with us. All people, Christian or not, have standards for themselves, whether it's about being more generous, being more loving towards your spouse, being more patient with the kids, sharing the gospel with your colleagues, watching your language, cutting back on alcohol, avoiding sexual immorality, or even eating healthier and exercising more. If these standards are based in the Bible, God's will for how we should live our lives as Christians, then they're good things to aim for. Don't get me wrong, I'm not saying that these things are useless altogether, only that they're useless in earning us our salvation. That's partly because if we're honest with ourselves, then we know that each and every day is another day that goes by where we don't even live up to our own standards, let alone the standards that God set for us. They're like a heavy and exhausting yoke on our neck that we just can't bear. We're a lot like the Israelites of old, who even though they had the law of God, kept getting it wrong, kept stuffing it up and chasing after idols. Those Israelites who eventually rejected the Messiah, putting to death the Son of God on a cross. Even though we know the good news of the gospel and agree with it intellectually, we still get sucked into this works-based way of operating and it leads to one of two things. It leads to kind of a a pride and self-righteousness and cockiness when we feel like we're nailing it or it leads to persistent feelings of guilt and shame and not living up when we feel like we're not getting it right. 
Here's a few questions from a little book that I found really helpful called The Bookends of the Christian Life, and they relate specifically, and they get to the heart of this performance-based view of our relationship with God. These first few questions relate to pride and self-righteousness, and they are, do you tend to live by a list of do's and don'ts? Is it difficult for you to respect those whose standards aren't as high as your own? Do you feel that you're better than most other people? Has it been a long time since you identified a sin and repented of it? Do you really think of Jesus and his finished work on the cross? And these questions relate to these feelings of persistent guilt and shame. Are you frequently disheartened by your failure to measure up? Are you painfully preoccupied with a particular sin or habit? Do you fear that your past will somehow come back to haunt you? Do you have a vague sense that you deserve to be punished? Do you really think of Jesus and his finished work on the cross? Well, if you answered yes to one or more of these questions, and if you feel like God should accept you on the basis of your your performance, or if you feel like you need to somehow become someone you're not or, or, or measure up in order for God to be happy with you, then please take these words from Peter in Acts 15 and apply them deeply. Why do you try and test God by putting on your neck a yoke that the Israelites of old and everyone who's ever lived has been unable to bear? No, we believe it's by the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that we're saved. If you're exhausted from wearing that yoke of works-based righteousness around your neck, then please hear these words of Jesus in Matthew eleven twenty-eight. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. So salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, and that's really the the take-home message, the crux message of Acts 15. But there's really another really interesting outcome from the Jerusalem Council. Let's read from verse 19 where Simon says, It's my judgment, therefore, that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. Instead, we should write to them, telling them to abstain from food polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from the meat of strangled animals and from blood. For the law of Moses has been preached in every city from the earliest times and is read in the synagogues on every Sabbath. Well, what's going on here? Didn't we just say that Christianity isn't about a list of rules, yet here we have a list of rules that the Gentiles were instructed to keep? Well, it's most likely the case that these few rules were about two things. Firstly, they're about turning from an overtly Gentile, pagan way of life, so it was obvious that there was something different about these Gentile Christians. Secondly, they're about maintaining unity and love between Jewish and Gentile Christians. You see, idol worship and 
sexual immorality were two absolute trademarks of early paganism that a lot of Gentiles would have been involved in. What this passage is saying is that the Gentile Christians had been called out of that way of life into a very different way of living. Not only that, but idols and and certainly foods and food strangled by blood and different things going on there, they would have been extremely offensive to Jewish sensitivities. Can you imagine then if the Gentile believers kept eating these certain foods, how confronting that would have been to the more sensitive Jews? No, for the sake of unity and love between these believers, it was better for the Gentiles in the early church to just abstain from those things altogether. There's a real lesson here for us as well. It's probably safe to say that we passed the whole meat polluted by idols and strangled by blood phase. But it's also true to say that we live in a pagan culture where idols of comfort, convenience, materialism and individual sexual expression are held up as being the greatest good, the greatest things that you can strive for. We're called to be different from that. We're called to reject those idols and worship the living God. It's also true that within the church we're still a very diverse and different group of people. And the principle of possibly abstaining from certain behaviours or practices for the sake of not offending some other Christians still applies, doesn't it? I thought of a few examples, uh, but you might like to think of some of your own. Do you have any Christian friends or family who are strict on keeping the Sabbath day? Definitely not working, definitely not doing any shopping or eating out or watching TV or movies. Uh, Christians who devote the whole of Sunday to going to church, resting and perhaps spending time with family. Maybe it's wise to respect their conscience on this issue and not flaunt it if we don't share those same convictions. Do you have any Christian friends who are either teetotalers or who might struggle with alcohol addiction? Maybe it's wise then to think twice about how you use alcohol when those people are around. And the third one I thought of was, do you have any Christian friends who you know might be sensitive as to what kind of movies or music they watch, or music they listen to? Maybe it's wise to think twice before putting on certain movies at your house if those people are around at the time. I think that doing these things wouldn't kill us, would it? But it would be an opportunity to show love and respect to other Christians who might grapple or struggle or or just have tender consciences on these certain issues. It's also important to keep in mind that so often these people aren't living by these rules for the sake of being legalistic, they're actively seeking to live the type of life that they're called to. They're living that way out of a genuine love for God and a conviction to follow Christ. Instead of rubbishing them, we need to see their diligence as a good thing even if we don't share the same convictions. Yes, we're saved by grace and the actual freedom and the sense of freedom that that brings is amazing. If you know something of this freedom, this deep rest for your soul, then praise God for that. But let's use that freedom not to trample on other people's consciences, but to love and serve one another for the glory of God and the building up of his church. Amen.
Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for your grace. Thank you for the love that you've shown us in your son, Jesus Christ, and his finished work on the cross for us. Thank you, Lord, that uh, our salvation isn't up to us. It's not about how hard we work or how well we measure up, but it's about your grace to us through Jesus Christ and us placing our faith in him. Lord, many of us have been Christians for a long time and we so quickly forget the grace of God and we so quickly fall back into thinking that your view of us is based on what we do. We pray that this morning might be a reminder for us to meditate on Christ, to renew our faith in him. Lord, we pray also that uh, you might allow us to use our freedom for unity, for um, love of each other, so that your name might be glorified and that we might build each other up in faith. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.